This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment-related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Thank you. Hello, this is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host of ADHD Focus, a podcast which brings you real information about ADHD and all aspects of it. Today my guest is Dr. David Anderson. He is a clinical psychologist with ChildMind, an organization in, in uh, New York City which provides uh, services to parents and of children with ADHD and behavior disorders and a wide range of uh, different aspects of ADHD. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So uh, today we'll be talking about various behavioral aspects of ADHD, different kinds of behaviors, usually troublesome ones, that can show up in kids with ADHD. Not all are directly related to ADHD, but we'll get into talking about that. First, let's talk about, in general, the types of behavioral problems that um, show up or that parents come to you asking for help in dealing with. Right. I mean, the thing is, uh, when somebody first presents for, say, an intake evaluation, um, when we're first beginning to speak with them, a lot of it is uh, differentiating ADHD symptoms from the behaviors that may be their consequence. So uh -huh. in many ways, what we start with is, uh, you know, kind of helping parents understand the biological nature and roots of ADHD mm -hmm. that, you know, in, in general, uh, the kind of most frequent presentation of ADHD symptoms will be those kids who from an early age, uh, you know, show this kind of distractibility, a tendency to move around, a tendency to interrupt, speak impulsively, things like that. And what we're trying to build up is a sense of empathy for the nature of those biologically driven symptoms, that if from an early age you are attracted to things that are off limits, to, you know, being on the go, to running and climbing on things, to, uh, you know, interrupting people in social situations and not seeming to be able to wait your turn, what you're destined for, even before anybody thinks this child could probably have ADHD, is a lot of negative feedback. Yes. So we try to help parents understand is the transactional process that happens between biologically based ADHD symptoms and the kinds of behaviors that parents are then often reporting uh, that may be due to a complex interplay of feedback the child's getting, consequences that have been attempted, uh, ways of addressing the symptoms, and kind of parenting style. And so mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to kind of delineate all those different factors and attribute them to other behavioral issues. And we'll tell parents is you got your frequent flyers, which are that, you know, what we know is it's difficult to be organized, to follow through on various tasks, especially the boring ones or the ones that are repetitive. Right. And so we'll tell parents those are the ones we expect to be present with all, you know, kids with ADHD. 
And then there's the ones where behaviors become even more complicated. The, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40% of kids with ADHD also present with, for example, oppositional defiant symptoms, where you know, they really have evolved into temper tantrums, high levels of annoyance and anger and resentment, uh, you know, lots of arguments and things like that, and things that are, are beyond what would be normal in kind of the, the scope of child behavior. Mm-hmm. But again, a, other... lot of, a lot of that is kind of making the distinctions. I just wanted to comment that uh, kind of the other, um, the inattentive uh, kids who don't necessarily show up with the overt behaviors of interrupting and being always on the hyper side, they're the ones who get playing with Legos when it's time to get ready for school and mom comes up having said three times, let's get ready, and the kid's still in underwear and building Lego sets. So they just don't remember what's been uh, what's been asked or where's your gloves these are the fourth pair you've lost this winter right. little things and, that still end up getting that negative feedback oh absolutely I mean we what we generally see is that you know at least in, in both research and in practice the kids with the ADHD combined presentation who have both hyperactive impulsive and inattentive symptoms may get identified earlier they may get diagnosed earlier they may start treatment earlier but it's it's no more impairing in the sense that the kids who are inattentive or spacey uh, still have those behaviors that really affect adults level of patience with them or the number of times they've had to repeat themselves or mm-hmm. the number of times they've had to buy winter gloves and right you know, that can, that can easily be seen as willful. It can easily be seen for any kid with ADHD's presentation to be that they're not trying hard enough or they just don't seem to care as much as their siblings, when in reality we want parents to think of it as something where it's the example that I often give is it's as if, you know, everybody in life learns gymnastics and then the kid's being asked to do a backflip without ever having practiced. And mm, in that sense, it can be really difficult to be able to kind of uh, have a kid suddenly be able to, to perform this, even if your expectations are the clearest they could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, and oftentimes the hyper kids may be uh, thought of possibly having ADD before they get to preschool, and certainly they get to a school setting when everybody's supposed to kind of conform and get on your mat at the same time, whatever. Uh, those kids show up pretty easily and get now the negative feedback from teachers or notes from teachers mm-hmm. to parents. Um, I mean, absolutely. And it's, it's something where, you know, even though the, the kind of first major diagnostic point often tends to be third grade, just because that's when the academic work becomes challenging enough that for mm-hmm. many kids, their ADHD symptoms become so impairing that they, they really have to be identified and, and need support. Um, you know, we see lots of kids who starting at age even three, it's very clear that even in the circle time or the story time in their preschool classroom, uh, you know, their level of movement is significantly higher than that of their peers or the level of focus may be significantly different. Mm-hmm. But I think the distinction, and this is where we're always kind of cautioning parents, is that, you know, we'll see lots and lots of parents who are, are uh, nervous about possibly bringing their child in for an evaluation at those ages because they don't want them to be pathologized or they have concerns about medication. And, and we'll generally say that the reason why the CDC and a lot of the, the research recommends uh, psychosocial interventions before age seven is not necessarily because medication is dangerous in the hands of 
you know, the, the right child and adolescent psychiatrist, but rather because a lot of those hyperactive impulsive symptoms at those ages could still be due to a number of factors. And it's right. why we're cautious with the diagnosis of ADHD in young kids. So we mm-hmm. want to, you know, intervene behaviorally as much as we can at those early ages and see what happens. Because for every kid we're sure is going to have an ADHD diagnosis in third grade, uh, when we see them for the first time in, in first grade, we see another kid who, you know, may have symptoms that really lessen by the time they reach third grade. Right. One question in terms of the oppositional defiant disorder, um, I've always had a problem with that in terms of it standing as a separate diagnosis. I oftentimes figure it's a kind of the emo- extra emotional reactivity that may be part of the ADD. Do you think the oppositional defiant is there before there's this repeated negative feedback? Is it a separate entity or does that kind of thing trigger it more? There's definitely a pathway to it. I mean, in in considering kind of how oppositional defiant disorder or uh, ADHD develops, I mean, we're, we're talking about something where ADHD has high heritability in the research. ODD has mm-hmm. been linked to some genetic factors, especially early emerging ODD. So in that sense, uh, it can be these kids who have really reactive temperaments from an early age. Their parents have no idea to react, how to react to their high emotionality or the fact that they're not soothed by anything or that they're, uh, you know, experiencing a lot of highly emotional reactions to different stimuli in their environment. And so it, it definitely can be something where ODD emerges at an early age and could be genetically linked. It's just that with ADHD, the, the comorbidity between ADHD and ODD in the research is between 40 and 60%. So it's either, uh, uh, you know, just under the majority of kids have both ADHD and ODD, or just over, you know, the, the majority of kids have uh, both of these things. We still want to make sure that parents understand that there's a large portion of kids who present with ODD and don't have attentional difficulties, a large portion of kids who, uh, you know, present with ADHD and don't have necessarily uh, ODD. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it goes back to whether it's caused by genetic factors or environmental factors, uh, you know, we still want to separate out those conditions for parents. Even when you talk about the kind of you know, high emotionality that might be, uh, you know, associated with ADHD, that isn't actually a factor that necessarily happens in the majority of cases. It, that's one of those factors that can be much more linked either when ODD is presenting or when a kid has gotten a lot of the course of cycle over the course of their life. Mm-hmm. The other um, kind of uh, kids I see may or may not have ADHD, but they may be on the autism spectrum, and they're reacting because they're anxious, they're overstimulated by what for somebody else may not be um, too much. So then they're reacting, they seem angry, they go into terrible meltdowns. So it behaviorally there's that... Um, you're getting in the way and you're causing a major problem. I think right. a difference, they aren't arguing necessarily. Um, right. Or the, well, I think the really these, the defiant part. Right. And in many ways, you know, these conditions are, are you know, closely related uh, in terms of some of the ways that they might present, which is why we, we tell people that you really need a thorough diagnostic eval that rules everything in, while at the same time ruling whatever 
it isn't out because mm-hmm. with the kids who may be on the spectrum, I mean, up until 2013, uh, you know, the DSM advised against diagnosing kids with both an autism spectrum right. disorder and ADHD. And then it was shown that there were actually were kids who really were impaired by symptoms that were distinct of both disorders. So again, that kind of, you know, uh, recommendation was taken out, but it still is something where we need to think about the motivation. Like a kid with ADHD may not be overloaded from a sensory perspective. They may be just bored, but we right. may not necessarily know the internal derivation of behavior without some really good diagnostic evaluation. So um, parents come in, there's, uh, mm-hmm. there's obvious behavior problems sometimes in the main presentation. Mm-hmm. What do you do in terms of what can you how do you walk them through, okay, this is what's going on, what are the next steps? What can they do at home to help um, turn this around or get the family more functional? Right. So first we tell them what they can expect in terms of their confidence and us having a clear picture. In the sense that for us, you know, whether it's ADHD, whether it's ODD, we start off by just talking them through the diagnostic eval process where we do a parent interview. You know, we usually use a, a kind of semi-structured interview that has really, you know, questions that relate to every single disorder you could have. And then we also have questions that we can use for follow-up that are, you know, based on whatever the family presents us with. We'll do a child interview, but we really tailor it to age. If the kid's young, mm-hmm. we don't tend to worry about the self-report too much. We're just trying to look for insight because, you know, Lots of kids younger than age 10 will just deny there's anything going on right. for a number of reasons. Lots of kids older than age 13 will also deny there's anything going on for a number of reasons. So, you know, we, we try to get that parent interview. One of the things we tell parents is in order to diagnose ADHD well, you've got to get multiple informants. You know, we want to see if these symptoms biologically mm-hmm. present across settings. So we make sure that parents also give us the opportunity to get teacher feedback, to possibly do a class observation, and then to get symptom questionnaires from, you know, a couple different adults in the kid's life. At that point, we can be fairly confident in saying to the parent, look, we think this is ADHD. You know, it may or may not be ODD as well. Uh, you know, here are the other diagnoses that we're ruling out. Once that happens, once we have an ADHD or, or an ODD diagnosis, we lay out the, the kind of evidence-based models of treatment. So we want parents to know is what works and then also what does not work. And that, mm-hmm. I think, is a really important piece. So yes. What, what we highlight for ADHD is we tell parents the most effective intervention for ADHD when it's clearly diagnosed is medication as well as behavioral supports. Now, if the child is very young or if we're you know, not sure how much these symptoms might decrease as they get older in terms of their age, we may say, look, while they meet criteria for ADHD symptoms right now, we can start with just the psychosocial piece since, you know, we may not be able to have the child reliably report side effects or, you know, sure. we don't necessarily know how biologically based the symptoms are. But we, we always start with that because we want parents to understand that psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers work together to support ADHD and that in the event that you see a kid with ADHD, you need everybody in the equation. You, know, you right. don't just want to go with one thing. So what often happens after that is that, you know, we've, we've seen parents have lots of questions about, you know, medication and where that goes. And I, as a psychologist, I tend to leave that to my psychiatry colleagues. But what I'll start outlining is what psychosocial intervention looks like for ADHD. And I'll often yeah. go back to a phrase that Russell Barkley uses where we'll talk about how the key is intervention at the point of performance. It's that, you know, when parents are thinking, okay, now I have a diagnosis, you know, so what's going to happen is, you know, a lot of parents will say to us, so I, I guess I drop my child off, 
you know, you spent an hour with them a week, you know, you fix the ADHD. Yes. Yeah. No. You know, if, if that's what you're expecting, that's a wholly different model of treatment than what the evidence base would entail. And what we say mm-hmm. to them is, as much as I like your child and as much as it might be great to play with them and, you know, have a good time, uh, you know, during any given session, they're very likely to behave, you know, okay with me for an right. hour a week. That's not going to get you the other six days and 23 hours. So that's where we start talking about behavioral parent training and teacher consultation. And I'll often go back to kind of, you know, Evans, Owens, Wims, and Ray, which is one of the most recent, you know, 2017 reviews of evidence-based behavioral interventions for ADHD. And I'll show them the level of evidence for behavioral parent training, you know, compared to the level of evidence for something else. And yeah. I'll say, look, it's not, it's not that this is perfect. It's a lot of work. I really wish that it could just be that I play with the kid and ADHD symptoms get better. But I've got nothing that says that. And the other thing I always tell parents is, you know, if, if you want to drop your kid off with me and have me play with them for, you know, a session, you can buy me a new car, but I may not treat the ADHD. Like, yeah, I want yeah. them to at some point not need me anymore and to feel like, you know, they've learned all the skills they need. So that's where with young kids, what we tend to use is a model of treatment called parent-child interaction therapy, which is well-established for kids ages 3 to 7 around behavioral symptoms. Um, you know, with kids ages 7 to 13, we'll use Kasdan's parent management training. And with kids older than that, we use Barclay's, you know, defiant teens. But there are lots of different models. There's helping a non-compliant child. There's incredible years. You know, there's parent management training, the Oregon model. Um, and they all have the same underlying principles. And, you know, in, in that sense, if we can teach parents those underlying principles in sequence and help them to think about undoing some of the instincts we all have around managing behavior, and yeah. then learning some new strategies for it, we can get better. I'll say one other thing before I launch into those outlines, but it's that the other major thing we say to parents is that behavioral parent training doesn't treat core symptoms of ADHD. It doesn't make the child yep. more focused. Yep. And at this stage, you know, what it does, it structures the child's environment so that they can be successful. At this stage, we really caution parents against any treatment that uh, claims to increase their focus. You know, we'll say to them, physical activity, diet, and sleep all improve everyone's mental health, but they're not a treatment for ADHD. Uh, right. Omega-3 supplements don't necessarily have the level of evidence to treat ADHD. You know, uh, yep. whether you, you, you hear great claims from neurofeedback, it's not necessarily there just yet in terms of the level of evidence uh, literature. And yeah. so it's kind of we want to want to make sure that we're not telling them we're in the best of all possible worlds here, like we know everything. We just we don't know that some of this stuff works as well as some of this other stuff. Right. So what are these, you mentioned underlying principles are yeah. the same with those. What are the, the right. basic ones, I guess, in the order? So, so the basic ones, the, the thing that we do is we, we tend to present parents with a hierarchy. And we say, look, this underlies every behavioral parent training model that you're going to find. And it is the first thing is that we tell parents you want to think about what behaviors you model for your child. So we start off with that. Then we go to the next hierarchy, which is now we want to identify the behaviors that you'd like to change. And this is a part where we do a lot of work with parents on coming up with specific observable behaviors that can be framed positively, that they're going to know when they've occurred. Because some of the hallmarks of behavioral parent training are that you you, you kind of avoid talking about what you don't want to happen because it's hard to reinforce the absence of a behavior. Yeah. But it's instead much easier to say, here's what I want to promote. So we work with parents a lot. You know, Kasdan calls it the positive opposite to find, like, if you're worried that your child screams for another option at mealtime, what you want is they calmly eat the options presented. 
And you know, that is your positive behavior. So we get parents to plan ahead, figure out what behavior they would like. Then we make them data-driven. We say, look, if you're going to do this you know, and, and really change behavior, I don't want our sessions every week to be based on a qualitative report of the worst moment you had during the week, right. Wednesday morning when they were screaming before school. I want us to have data that shows whether or not they improve in the majority of trials. So you know, you've got 15 meals with them a week. Of those 15 meals, how many times did they calmly eat the options presented? How many times was there screaming? Let's get some data on that right off the bat as a baseline so that instead of it being just that you remember how they screamed on Sunday night and our right. sessions on Monday, it's you know, this many times. The next piece is we build in positive reinforcing behavior. So we, we tell lots of you know, families that we'll, we'll show them either a graph from helping a non-compliant child, which is Rex Forehand's model, uh, you know, just about like kind of where we all pay attention, and we'll, we'll talk about how we are programmed as humans that when something that's socially unacceptable or that is, you know, annoying to us happens, we pay attention to it. And when something positive happens, we think, oh, okay, everything's going to plan, or we walk on eggshells, mm-hmm. or we, you know, tell ourselves, like, you know, don't jinx it, and that we want to switch that. And for the vast majority of kids, it doesn't matter that we're doing that. But for a kid who has behavioral difficulties or ADHD, we really need to be emphasizing when a positive behavior occurs. And so that's where, with younger kids, we teach parents a lot of verbal skills to change the way they speak to their child because their kids are still so excited about their attention. And that's where we can really use parent verbalization to our advantage. And Mm -hmm. as kids get older, we create more tangible contingencies. So we help parents to create behavior charts that have privileges or other things the kids are working toward or an opportunity to go out for a special dinner or to choose the restaurant for that night, you know, things like that where a kid might be motivated. But we talk to the parents a lot about how there's a real difference in approaching behavior from the point of view of if you do this, then you earn this, as opposed to if you do this, then you lose that. And so, yes, yeah, the negative yeah. definitely. Uh, and, yeah. of course, parents, I see a lot who've, well, we've taken away the Xbox, we've taken away the phone, they can't see TV, and, right. okay, have taken away all these screens, kids can come up with other things to do, but you're still seeing the other negative behaviors you don't want to see. Well, what frequently happens in that situation where parents have taken away absolutely everything is we say, look, you know, no reason to increase guilt for the parents. They're just doing what everybody else does or what everybody's told them to do at a family picnic. The issue yeah. is at those family picnics, 75% of kids, you know, when you take away a privilege, they generally will improve their behavior. Whereas a kid with ADHD or ODD, you know, you take away those uh, privileges. And if, if all you're doing is punishing, they tend to become habituated to it. So it's yep. that, you know, I, I had a kid earlier this year that I was working with where his parents took away his phone for almost the entire summer. And by the time fall came around, even when we were creating an incentive, you know, to earn back his phone, the kid, the kid turned to me and just said, I've learned how to exist without a phone. I, I don't need it, you know. Good for so him. That may be the most well, healthy I mean, thing I mean, he's learned. Absolutely. At some level, he may actually be in a better place than most of his peers, you know, just in the fact that he's not dependent on getting, you know, uh, reinforcement from the phone. But at the same time, you know, look, if, if he was having fun playing a particular iPhone game that was fairly harmless, that was us losing an opportunity to incentivize something. And, mm-hmm. you know, for parents who are just trying to get the morning routine done or just trying to get the kid to have good manners at the table or trying to get them to stay in their room at night and do quiet activities even while their body is saying otherwise – uh, it's it's good to have some of those incentives to be able to promise them. Oh yeah. So, 
that's why oftentimes at that positive reinforcement stage, we take that inventory of all the things that could reinforce them. We have lots of lists that are just, you know, tons and tons of things that could be positive reinforcing for kids. My favorite, though, are actually getting parents to laugh about lists that are uh, 20 years outdated that still include things like listening to a cassette tape or, yeah. uh, you know, taking the Walkman on a walk, which, you know, is always yeah. great when, when parents are seeing what this, how this technology has not really changed. It's just now become, you know, uh, taking their iPhone, which doubles as an iPod and has more music than they could ever have dreamt of on it. Um, but, you know, the, the last couple of things we go through in behavioral parent training are just after we've taught parents how to up their level of positive reinforcement, uh, then we teach them how to engage in the process of extinction. We try to identify which behaviors are dependent on parent or other attention to survive, and we try to get them to ignore those behaviors and withdraw their attention from them. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we delineate a group of behaviors with parents that they really feel require punishment in order to get them to reduce, and we teach parents how to give good directions, how to reinforce you know, compliance with those directions, and then also how to deliver consequences for misbehavior in a really predictable and, and sparing way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once we've figured out how to do those things, usually within any behavioral parent training model, there's also a, an aspect of this that entails the generalization of techniques to school where you go in and yeah. you teach some lighter version of the teachers. And so is that, uh, in your case, you have access to social workers, other folks, mm-hmm. and in um, yeah. a lot of us, either pediatric pa- practice may not have those resources. I'm just a solo doc. And so yeah. um, getting some, whether it's a program in school or does it take just me sitting down or setting out some things and writing for a teacher to be yeah. able to do that same uh, set up the positives, catch them when they're doing uh, things well. Right. I mean, I think that the, the difficulty is that as much as uh, we would all like to be available to teachers, we are not nearly as available as we would like to be in the ideal. Um, because when you look at, for example, the, the studies of you know teacher consultation, how it worked, a lot of those studies are kind of ivory tower type things where there was, right. you know, right. uh, initial one hour consult in person with a teacher followed by 30 minutes of consultation, you know, every other week for the duration of the study. Right. And right. that may not be realistic in practice. But what I think we focus on is this. We have, uh, in general, a couple slides that whether or not we can meet in person with a teacher or whether or not we can send them a couple slides ahead of time um, mm-hmm. or, or just kind of discuss them over the course of a, a brief phone call, what we'll try to do is just talk about, A, you know, what we know about this hierarchy and what works. And so we'll try to get teachers buy-in on a couple major behavioral changes. That even though we know they're juggling a million things, that even though we know that, you know, they shouldn't have to adapt themselves, especially if they feel like this child has been, you know, provocative or, uh, right. you know, attempting to get in their skin for quite some time. But we say that the solution is this. It's in many of the classroom observations I do, I will count the number of times a teacher has interacted with a child. And we will say it's not about making it so you interact more with this child or take away more time from other students. It's about making interactions more efficient. So if we know over the course of a one-hour class period you're going to interact with this child seven times, and we were to count those in classroom observation, how many times are they waiting till the latter part of the class period to tell the child that they've done something wrong or that they haven't followed the directions, that they forgot something. 
how many uh-huh. of them are front-loaded at the beginning of the class period to set up expectations or front-loaded at the beginning of the class period to reinforce any positive progress the child might be making. And so mm-hmm. that's where we try to start on that small behavioral change, where if we can get educators thinking, how do I make my expectations clear and neutral at the beginning, even writing them down if I possibly can for a kid with ADHD, and yep. then how do I make sure to front-load some positive feedback like, okay, you know, Bobby, you finished the first four math problems right away. You know, I'm so excited about how much effort you're putting into this. Rather than waiting for Bobby to lose focus, not finish the last three and then come back, you know, 20 minutes later and tell the kid that they failed. Uh, That's kind of the first thing we focus on. And the second thing we focus on is literature on daily report cards. This is, uh, you know, Bill Pelham and Gregory Fabiano. So we try to set up templates with teachers where we say, look, let's get through three questions give me two behaviors or three behaviors you want them to work on over the course of the school day. Let's set up a way that we can track those, you know, just during any sort of class period, either a yes, no, or a check, or, you know, a Mm -hmm. percentage performed or something like that. And if we can link it to incentives in school, and that usually happens in the lower grades, great. You know, maybe it's a classroom helper thing. Maybe it's that they get to, you know, earn a special privileged time with the teacher or something like that. If it's not in those lower grades where we have maybe reinforcement structures set up in school, we try to link it to home, where we try to link it back into what system we've set up, and we say, okay, if the kid comes home with this many points from sitting quietly at circle time and raising their hand before speaking, then they're earning, you know, points toward money that can be spent on, uh, you know, albums on iTunes or something like that. Right. You know, those, those systems have decades of research behind them, and it just has to be that we get folks on board with the idea that catching kids being good on these couple behaviors will eventually lead to change, where I think for a lot of folks it's difficult to, you know, see kind of the forest through the trees there. Right. And uh, unfortunately, as usual, we're out of time and plenty of things to discuss, but I think uh, <laughs> specifically the idea of not just leaving parents or teachers, well, catch them when they're good, but setting up, what do you mean by good? What are the behaviors that would indicate mm-hmm. that? Track them, yeah. track when they're problems, and also have some basic reward system. And I tell parents, it's not that by the end of the school term, you'll get $50. Well, that's right. that's might as well be next century as far as the third graders concerned in right. October. Um, right. So we'll need to uh, stop here, and Dr. Anderson, hopefully we can continue the conversation on this and some other questions I have. Uh, but for Absolutely. right now, I've got to sign off. This is Dr. David Pomeroy, uh, and I've been my guest has been Dr. David Anderson. We've been talking about behavioral aspects of ADHD and what parents and teachers can do to turn those around. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon.